So last week we started a brand new series here on Sunday nights, uh, and and the goal eventually, as I outlined to you, is eventually what I want to do is move us into a study of the Book of Revelation, uh, and not wanting to for lack of a better way to put it, open the can of worms that sometimes is revelation without proper context. I wanted to segue us into it by learning how to read our Bibles. Hence, the, the class that we're going through now, which is called Biblical Theology, subtitled perhaps quite, uh, I think quite well, which is reading the Bible with an Emmaus perspective. And we're going to actually get to that, that subtitle here tonight. But essentially what I wanted to do is really just introduce to you this, this topic called biblical theology. You might be scared about that, as we talked about last time, uh, this idea of theology, it's too highbrow, it's, mm, that's, for, that's for other people. No, we can all be theologians, and in fact, my goal throughout the next several weeks is to encourage you to see that theology Theology is not just for academic people. Theology is what God has called all of us to learn, to invest ourselves in, to really study. And in fact, whenever you're reading the Bible, you're quote-unquote doing theology, even if you don't know it. Um, So that's what I wanted to do. And essentially, biblical theology, I'll just kind of run through a lot of these slides, um, answers the question, do you know how to read your Bible? Um, we, uh, We asserted last time that the biggest problem in the church today is that those in the pews don't know what their Bible says. Uh, And I think that's not just a generalization. That sounds like I'm just painting with a broad brush. But as we saw last time, um, uh, Ligonier and a couple other places do a survey every two years called the State of Theology Survey. They survey a bunch of adults, and um, they ask them a lot of questions. They ask them this, or they ask them to respond to these statements, you know, like, I, I strongly disagree, I slightly disagree, blah, blah, blah. They uh, ask them this, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains a helpful, helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And what you know, 53% of U.S. adults agreed to that, which essentially makes it very apparent where the state of the Bible is in terms of people's consciousness, where they, what they think about it. They think about it like Aesop's fables. It's just a book of myths. It has some good stories. It teaches some ethical lessons. It can make you a more moral person. But it's not literally true in what it's supposed to say, which I think shows us where the biggest need is. The biggest need in the church is, there's lots of them, but I think the biggest one is understanding what the Bible is, what it's supposed to do, what the Bible's supposed to tell us. Um, And I think that that's what I hope you can see uh, throughout this series, throughout this whole time that we're learning about biblical theology, what that means, how we can actually do the practice of biblical theology, which we'll get to eventually, um, I promise. And it just, I think it makes it very apparent that you and I, we need theology. We need to know more about who our God is. And we answered, we kind of went through this last time. If someone says, I don't need theology, I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus, ask them, who is Jesus? Any answer they provide, they're doing theology, whether they know it or not. They're giving you a theological answer. And the only question then, are they giving you a good answer or are they giving you a bad answer? It's going to be a very quick litmus test if they answer that question, uh, who is Jesus? You're going to know exactly where the theology is based on how they answer that question. Um, 
So, uh, and then we went through 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 18, which is one of the really good places to go to if you're wanting to see the importance of theology. We spent a lot of time on that last time where God, uh, or where Paul encourages his, his pupil, Timothy, to rightly divide the word of truth. We spent a lot of time uh, going through that. Uh, you need theology. And then we answered this question. We ended this on this question last time. What is biblical theology and we gave the answer that is gaining a panoramic view of the bible by tracing its overarching story and this is where we're going to pick up this time we're going to spend a lot more time here uh on what this means kind of unpacking this idea uh because biblical theology is is just that it's it's getting a panoramic view it's like you're on the on the on the precipice of the grand canyon and you can just see for miles around you and you get a huge sweeping view of this huge scenic site in the middle of the united states and essentially that's what's happening here with with this idea of biblical theology you're standing at the edge and the whole story of the bible is laid out in front of you you could call it uh, the bird's eye view, like a bird has a huge view of the horizon and is able to see things very far off. That's essentially what biblical theology is doing for us, for, for the church, for the Christian. Uh, you're being able to see uh, what the whole story of the Bible is. And I think this is important because what we believe about the Bible, there's a few things that we can assert. Uh, and we ended kind of at this point last time. Um, we believe, in, in, in if, if you've grown up in church or whatever, and you, and you would say, I, I believe that the Bible is inerrant. It is without error in all of the things that it records and that it presents. We believe that, and hopefully you do. Um, there's been lots of theological debates in decades past where theologians that have gone before us have, have fought uh, sort of that theological battle that the Bible is inerrant. It doesn't contain errors in the things that it presents to us. But I would also say, um, this is just my word trying to be rhymy here, um, that the Bible is not aberrant. It's not, it, it, it doesn't deviate from the main point. Everything you have in the Bible is there for a reason. Um, and, and that's why, and I've made this point before, and I think it, it, it's, it's good to stress it. Um, so when you're reading the history books, like Chronicles and Kings, uh, any of them, or Samuel or whatever, they record large blocks of history, right? They go through kings at pages at a time, and essentially you're covering decades as you flip pages. So in one way you can read it like, here's a lot of history here. But also, another way to examine those books is to notice what history it records. Because you'll notice there's a lot of times where it just, it just brushes over important events of history. That one event that is recorded in Kings from the outskirts is the Battle of Carchemish, um, which I think is where Nebuchadnezzar uh, defeated the Egyptians. And if you, if you just brush over it, you won't see it recorded there, which in, in perhaps in ancient historians' mind, it would be like, how can you not record this historical event? Because the Bible is telling a certain story. The Bible has a purpose. It's showing you certain events that lead you to the purpose of the Bible. It's not meant to record every detail of history because that's not its point. That's not its purpose. It's showing you certain events of history that lead you to the purpose that it wants to reveal. 
And I think making this point that the Bible is not aberrant, it doesn't have unimportant stories in it, might be hard to believe. Um, especially, do I have this? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. We believe that the Bible is divinely inspired and preserved. So when we say that the Bible is not aberrant, that it doesn't have unimportant stories, that might be hard to believe, especially when there's a story in Judges 4 where a woman named Jael drives a tent peg through the head of Sisera. What does that have to do with the purpose of the Bible? Or how about when some teens get mauled by two mama bears in 2 Kings 2? I mean, what is, what is that doing? Or well, how about the time when a prophetic student loses the head of his axe in 2 Kings 6? What in the world is going on there? Or how about when a prophet is commanded by the Lord to shave his beard into thirds? There's, there's stories like this in the Bible, and, and there's lots of other ones, too. It, it, it makes you scratch your head. What in the world? What is going on? And it, uh, hopefully what I want to do is eventually come back to this and show you how all of these uh, lead forward to what the purpose of the Bible is. But I want you thinking about this because sometimes people will, will, will throw these things out. How do you believe the Bible includes all this stuff? And it, it, it mentions unicorns. <laughs> and it, it can throw you off if you're not ready for it. If you're not ready to really defend what you believe about the Bible, the Bible is not aberrant. It's not just a loosely collected or, or connected collection of ancient archives and, and allegories. See, the Bible is not only inerrant, it's not aberrant either. It's not haphazard or accidental uh, uh, about what it presents or about what you're reading. What's preserved in Scripture is preserved for a very specific purpose, for a very particular point. It wasn't put together at random. It wasn't just put together and just, here we go, there's 39 books, there we go, here's 20 more, 27 more. Each one is very specific and very important into what the Bible is all about. As I've said before, the Bible is not a better version of Aesop's fables. And maybe, you, how many of you grew up reading Aesop's Fables? Anyone? Maybe, maybe no. Okay. Um, I think that has like the one story, if I remember, where the king who doesn't know that he's naked. I think that's one of the Aesop's Fables. Um, it's like, it's teaching moral lessons. It's, it's a story, it's almost like a parable. It's a lot of parables, Aesop's Fables. I think it has a story of like the lion and the mouse, uh, if you're familiar with that story. Um, uh, anyways, I don't want to try and remember those because I'll mess it up. But uh, regardless, that's how we. That's sometimes how people treat the Bible too. Uh, it's just a story from a long time ago. It might be real. It might not be real. Again, as we learned, it's myths, but not literally true. But it's trying to present us with morals. It's trying to present us to make us better people. But actually, the stories that are recorded in the Scripture, as we've just asserted, are not detached. They're not disconnected from one another. They're not random. They're not haphazard. They're not just accidental. Actually, they're all very intricately, very divinely intertwined. They're interwoven by someone that's not human. They're interwoven by someone who is himself God, actually. And actually, I love this quote from James N. M. Hamilton Jr., who writes, The Bible has a narrative arc that begins at creation, rises over all that has been and all will be, and lands at the end of all things. It has a narrative arc. It has an overarching story that it's trying to tell. And it begins at creation and ends at the end of all things. And what is that narrative arc? 
That's the question that biblical theology tries to answer. What is the Bible saying from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22? What is it saying? What's the main point? Through 30,000 verses, through uh, 1,189 chapters, through 66 books and 40 authors, what's the one story? Well, biblical theology seeks to answer that story. Because biblical theology is a way to make sense of all that. Make sense of all those chapters and verses and authors and all the different viewpoints, all the different contexts in which they are writing, all the different genres of literature. You have letters, you have prophecy, you have narrative, you have history, you have poetry, you have all types of different genres of literature in the Bible. It's not just one genre, there's all types of genres. You know, like you can go in a bookstore and there's fiction and nonfiction, there's biography and There's all types of that included in your Bible, too. And part of understanding the Bible is understanding what genre you're in, because that'll change how you read it. You can't read a a psalm the same way that you read um, 2 Kings. They're not going to act the same. They're not going to present the same sorts of things. Biblical theology is a way to make sense of that. Understanding the whole time, That there's one story being told. There's one story being presented. And that one story, of course, is the story of of how God, who created all things, has chosen to reveal his glory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the story. That's an assertion we're going to prove, but it's an assertion I think that is clearly manifest throughout the Bible. That every obscure passage, all the ones that we mentioned, all those weird ones, the weird ones from from the Old Testament that you're like, man, I didn't even know they existed. All of them, they're all tethered. They all have their moorings back to the revelation of God through God's own Son. That's what every story in the Bible is connected to. They're all pointed to that. Mark Dever, he is the head guy at Nine Marks, a ministry uh, based out of Washington, D.C. He says, biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in the person work of Christ so that every part of Scripture is understood in relation to Christ. And that's hard to do, again, as there's obscure stuff in it. Essentially what this is going to do, biblical theology itself, is going to help you connect the dots, so to speak. How do we connect the dots from uh, 1 Samuel 1 to Jesus dying on the cross? That's what, this is, that's what, we're, that's what we're going to be learning how to do. Because that's what it is. Biblical theology is the learned art of noticing how the Bible's historical context and cultural references and writing styles are all deeply connected. Not like Aesop's fables where each story doesn't have any connecting point to the other one. They're all deeply connected. In order that we can discern how all of these stories, all these details, all these characters, all these historical markers can help us understand the God who makes himself known throughout this word. See, that's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing about our God, God wants to be known. God is a God who wants to be known by you and by me. 
God's word, I think there's, there's a fallacy and, and it's probably uh, one that's common just because of, you know, certain pieces of media and art have been uh, produced in recent years. God, the Bible you have in front of you, or if you have it on your phone, uh, regardless, it's not a divine da Vinci code. If you want to read the books, that's fine. I'm not going to like blast Dan Brown. But if you want to read them, that's fine. But your Bible is not a Da Vinci Code. There's no secret like message encoded in the Bible that we have to like figure out as if we're like you know Nick Cage from uh, National Treasure. There's no like thing that we're trying to find. God makes it very clear that who he is and what he wants us to see and know about him. He hasn't hidden himself, so to speak. God wants to be known. And in fact, I love what one theologian, he said, God is more intent on revealing himself to you than you are to get to know him. And that sounds odd at first, but that's the point of theology. The point of theology is that God wants to be known. And the key to knowing it is this right here. We just got to read it. We just got to read it. We just got to spend more time in it. The Word of God is plain and simple, the message of the revelation of God through the person and work of God's Son. I'll say that again. The Word of God is the message of the revelation of God through God's Son, His person, His work. That's what this Bible is. It's God, the Creator, the, the master of all things, the one who spoke and everything came into existence. He's showing us who he is by giving us his son. Jesus makes this plain. I love what John says. Go with me to John chapter 1. I'll, I'll read a, a couple of verses here. These are, of course, very familiar verses to us, but they're verses that speak directly to this point. John 1. Look at verse 14. John's opening chapter is a masterful chapter. And he says in John chapter 1, look at verse 14. He says, the word became flesh. That is, of course, talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, who, as he says, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's a great phrase. In the King James, I think it says, he has declared him. And essentially, what that phrase means is, is that Jesus expounds God the Father to us. So, like, you can imagine it like, like a preacher or a teacher. They take a passage of the Bible and they explain it. They expound it. They are preaching to you a, a certain truth. And the same idea, Jesus explains who God is. <laughs> Through what he does, through what he says, through what he shows us. You see, that's the amazing thing about Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. He is a, the, Jesus' life, death and resurrection, are the best sermon about God the Father we could ever get. 
That's who he is. He's making God known. If you ever want to know what God is like, what God values, what God uh, has most deeply in his heart, look at Jesus. That's how you know who God is. Because Jesus is making God known to you and to me. That's the point. The key to knowing God is understanding that Christ is the key. He's the key to it all. Not only understanding the Bible, but understanding who God is. If you'll permit me, let me read you this long, this is too much words. But um, uh, read you a passage from uh, a, a book that my friend wrote, Chad Bird called the Christ key where he's explaining some of these same topics. He says this, quote, the key called Christ not only opens the door of every room from Genesis to Malachi, when you walk inside, what you see there is Christ as well. He's the key and he is the content. In one way or another, every narrative, every prophet, every psalm whispers his name and winks about his mission. To read any part of the Bible without constantly bearing in mind its deep and purposeful ties to other parts makes as much sense as trying to understand an elephant by focusing only on the tip of his tail or examining its left nostril. <laughs> and he's being coy. But you, you get the point, right? To say that you understand the Bible only by examining one little part or taking one little lens through which you hope to understand the Bible and saying, this explains everything, ruins the whole picture. Just having a tail in front of you, an elephant, doesn't give you a full picture. Its tail is not very large and doesn't fit its size. (laughs) If you just looked at its tail, you'd be like, oh, this is a normal animal. When really, it's attached to a much bigger creature. And similarly, we keep the image of Christ fresh in our minds because that keeps the full picture fresh in our minds. That's what biblical theology is. That's what this, this, this deep investment into what the Bible says will do for us. It's the learned skill of noticing all of the ways in which the Bible advances the story of how God has redeemed the world through his only son, Jesus. That's what biblical theology is. It's saying, okay, every story is meant to drive us to a certain purpose, that Jesus is the point of it all. That God has chosen an infinite wisdom to redeem the world through his son. And the way in which we learn about how he has redeemed the world through his son is in the Bible. Every story points us to that. Biblical theology is a way to understand how. You can picture it this way. I think this is a good way to picture it. I think uh, understanding biblical theology, every story has a point, And every story has a point that is connected back to Jesus. is like reading Braille. If you read Braille, there's raised dots on a flat surface that allow blind people to read words, read books, or whatever. And each raised dot either has a higher or lower, but also has a different pattern, and you can read words that way. Actually, a a way to think about it is this, as if uh, this doesn't exist, I don't think, but uh, if if a person was reading, uh, uh, reading something through either raised dots or embedded dots, you can think about it that way, like... Some stories in the Bible are filled with raised dots. Christ is embossed. He comes out through the text, and it's so clear, you can't even miss him. (laughs) Other parts of the Bible has embedded dots, or you could say Christ is engraved. He's kind of missing. 
He's not, he's not always apparent, but he's still there. And the key is to paying attention to the difference. That's what this is helping us with. Studying biblical theology is the best way to learn, the, learn from the Bible how to read the Bible as a Christian should. That's what it's doing. Everything's tethered back to Christ. How? Well, turn to my favorite chapter, Luke chapter 24. This is a chapter we've been circling, a chapter I've spent some time studying in multiple different contexts and venues, but it's the chapter I always keep coming back to because I think it's one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And I've probably said that about another chapter, um, but I think I, I, I mean it about this one. <laughs> Not that I didn't mean it before, but you get the point. Um, where should we start? Where should we start learning about biblical theology. Everything's tied back to Christ. The best crash course on biblical theology is given to us by Christ himself right here. Starting in verse 16, you'll notice as it says, well, actually, we'll step back to verse 13. It says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. What had happened? Of course, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was dead. He had been nailed to a Roman cross in a makeup trial that were with makeup charges and makeup witnesses. And they tried him as guilty and they pegged him to a tree and he died between two criminals. This is Jesus of Nazareth, a miracle worker, but also a very prominent teacher who had a quite a, a large following. And yet at the end of when Jesus was being tried, all of his followers dispersed. They abandoned him. They didn't want to be associated with him. There's all kinds of rumors going around. And in fact, on this very day, the day that it's referring to in Luke 24, rumors are already circulating that Jesus' body is gone. Remember, they, they, he died while on the cross, and they took his body and they put him in a tomb. And yet now, three days later, this is the third day, his body's missing. And rumors are going around. <laughs> rumors are going around that his disciples, they stole his body. Something's going up. And then, I love this scene because there's two of these other disciples, not a part of the original twelve, but these are two other followers. They're traveling to a little village from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. But he isn't recognized. Notice. So they're talking. They're talking about all these things that has happened back in Jerusalem, all the crucifixion stuff and the trial stuff. And it says, verse 15, while they were talking... And discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They couldn't notice that it was Jesus. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So Jesus shows up, and they're talking about all these things. And basically, Jesus walks up to them, and he doesn't let himself be known to them in some such way. And he says... Why the long faces? Why are you so blue? What has you down? And then one of them, it says, verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? <laughs> have, you been living, have you been living under a rock? Didn't you hear what just happened about this guy who was tried as a criminal? I love Jesus' response. He says, what things? 
And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They're sad. They're sad about everything that had gone down in Jerusalem. They're sad about these rumors. They can't find the body. They don't remember what Jesus has said. Uh, If you read the Gospels, Jesus has been leading them up to this point. They should have been aware of what he was talking about, but they, they missed the part that every time Jesus describes his death, he also describes his resurrection. Forgot that part. But they reveal something very significant. When, they, when Cleopas says um, in verse number 21, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Very clear where he was placing his hopes. And essentially what we can say then is that Cleopas and his disciple and perhaps other followers of Jesus, they had succumbed, they had been bitten by the bug, if you will, of bad biblical theology. You see, they had pinned their hopes and dreams on Jesus being the Messiah. There's all kinds of promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament. It was a very important belief. We can't even stress how important it was for the people of Israel to be hoping in their Messiah. This belief traces all the way back to Genesis 3, where God gives Eve the promise that, yes, you will have the the seed will come after you, and yes, the seed will be bruised by the serpent, but that seed from you will crush the serpent's head. From Genesis 3 onward, the people of Israel have been a people of that promised seed, the son who would come from Eve's line. They've been circling around that belief. Every phase of Jewish history is circled and and, and, and encompassed by a belief that this one, the Son, the Messiah would come. And yet, what had they come to believe? They had come to believe the Messiah was just going to be one of political mights and military clout. And they thought that Jesus was the one. And again, did you see that? We thought it was He. In their eyes, the Messiah was going to be a warrior sent from heaven. So yes, divine, but he was sent from heaven and he would be a warrior and he would rise up, he would marshal all of Israel's armies and he would lead an overthrow of the Roman overlords and he would restore the throne of David back to its former glory. That is the belief of the Messiah in a nutshell. And that's why it's sad when Jews still to this day are still waiting for the Messiah to come. You see, when Jesus died, these two disciples on this road and others, all their hopes died too. 
When they saw Jesus die, it wasn't just their friend. It was their hopes. It was their dreams. They thought that he was going to be the one to lead a mighty overthrow of Rome and that they would be his governors with him. Why do you think they're arguing early on or or later on in the Gospels? Why do you think the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest? They want to know where their position is, what the hierarchy is going to look like. When Jesus is king and we're the governors right underneath him, what kind of prominence are we going to get? What kind of position are we going to have? They're thinking, they're thinking wrongly. They're thinking with a bad biblical theology. See, this is what helps us understand the doubt not just in Thomas, but in all of the other disciples too, because the principal error of these two disciples and others was, was the mistaken way that they had come to view the Bible. You see, for them, the, the Old Testament told them something. To them, when they read it, they told them that, that God was going to send a political, mighty warrior. And they thought it was Jesus, and then he died without making a dent in Roman tyranny. You could imagine, man, we thought it was him. See, the results of this error, the result of reading the Bible wrongly, was hopelessness and discouragement and despair. You see, when the seeds of faulty interpretation are sown, the only harvest is a false and flimsy hope. The hope of these two disciples, it was based on a bad understanding of the Bible. A bad way to understand what the Bible says and does is it meant to do and what resulted. (laughs) False hope, flimsy hope. Hope that couldn't subsist, couldn't last. And that's when, going back to Luke 24, Jesus decides (laughs) to put his arms around them and teach them a lesson in biblical theology. I love what he says, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? (laughs) See what's happening here? Jesus is taking these two disciples on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's telling them, that everything that happened back in Jerusalem was supposed to occur. It was prophesied. It was predicted. It, had, it was always in the cards. You might be surprised about it, but God wasn't. And if they had been paying attention to what they should have been paying attention to, they would have understand that this was the point all along. Verse 27, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And beginning with Moses, Jesus interpreted, excuse me, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Some of the most powerful words, I think. In all of the Bible. Because I think these words change how we are supposed to read the Bible. You see, Jesus has just revealed how these two uh, despairing, despondent disciples have missed the point. And how they can. And he's going to teach them. He teaches them here, right here. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for this biblical theology lesson. Because he's showing them how from Moses and all the prophets... How were they supposed to see him? (laughs) 
And this is not, and maybe this is going to sound too arrogant, but I, this is not a way to read to read the Bible. I think that this is the way to read the Bible because it's from Jesus' own lips. <laughs> He's telling us the Bible has one concern, and it's him. He's the point. The things concerning himself, according to the explanation... The interpretation, again, that word, he interpreted, he explains, he unveils, he interprets, he expounds. According to that explanation given by Jesus to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, all of the Bible, from Moses to the very last prophet, from Genesis to Malachi, it's all concerned with Christ. And later in the same chapter, jump down to verse 44, so these two disciples, these two, they eventually go back to the others, and then they, they tell them about all of this. And then later on in the chapter, Jesus just shows up. He walks through the wall, <laughs> an amazing scene. And he's teaching them. He's spending time with these, these disciples in that room. But notice verse 44. Now all of the twelve and all the other followers, they're there with them. And then it says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then I love this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. One of Jesus' purposes after his resurrection is accomplished right here when he opened the minds of all of his followers to finally understand, maybe perhaps for the first time, what all of the Bible was about. He tells them, if you want to know what everything in your Old Testament, for them it was, it was the, the Torah and the Tanakh, it was all of these scriptures. If you want to know what all that is about, let me show you, it's about me. It is about how I'm the fulfillment. When it says Jesus opened, again, it's the same word. He explained. He finally made it click. He expounded to them the way to make sense, to comprehend, to perceive clearly what the, what the whole thing is about. It's about him. Again, look at verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is telling them, the Bible has a point and that point is me. I'm... The one that this whole thing is about. There is a lot more that I would love to say. I think I'm going to close here and we'll, we'll pick back up at this point as we continue stressing this entryway into biblical theology.